0: One of my favorite soul groups um, other than Hall & is the OJs. I see the heads nodding out there. They famously have a, they have a famous song, For the Love of Money. If you have not heard that song, just buy it without listening to it. You'll love it. It's a great. It's a classic. For the Love of Money re- repeats in that song with great harmony, right? Um, they got that line from the Bible, though. 1 Timothy 6, verses 10 through 11, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says. Paul went on to say, It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs." Money is a powerful thing. On one hand, it can expose us to danger, while on the other hand, it can be used of God to reveal the need of my heart and through me, to to bless the lives of others. It's like every other category of our lives. It is either approached in the fear of God or in the love of self. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. We'll help you to have your Bible open this morning. The text today is found on page 421 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. Let me give a little background as you're turning to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah tells the story of what befell the third wave of returnees some 13 years after the second group had returned. Two main uh, actions occur, the rebuilding of the wall and the recommitment of the returned exiles to fulfill their covenant obligations. The walls, all this effort for the walls, the walls are, were regarded as an extension of the, of the house, the temple of God there in Jerusalem. And the city would be, would be a holy in its markers. This would be a set-aside people. They were marked off from the world. But we know that the Word of God, if the Scriptures do not first and foremost mark you off, well, in the end, you'll be a non-special, special people. And so the book is, a, as I mentioned last week, it's a general's diary, a governor's report, a civil record, a management handbook, and a memoir all in one. We have been accustomed to reading of the difficulties put in the way of the returned exiles by those outside the community. But this morning, in chapter 5, there's a, a sharp turn. We discover a new threat, not from without, but from within. Potentially more dangerous than the others because it strikes at the exile's most prash, precious asset, and that's unity. Unity. And so far, we have been accustomed to, again, just reading those things that were put in their way, but now we're going to have to look at some issues there within. So let's look look now at Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and their complaints, at these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials saying to them, "Each of you is charging his countrymen interests." So I called a large assembly against them and said, "We have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back." They remained silent, could not say a word. Then I said, what you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please, let's stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, And houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil. You have been assessing them. They responded, We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests. I made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, May God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said amen, and they praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. had promised. This is God's word. Amen. Often with scripture you see surprises after great advances and victory and uh, comes with uh, a setback with sin, and here we see one in chapter 5. So let's just look at the breakdown of the text. Verses 1 through 5, you see the great outcry against those who use the impoverished times for their gain against the poor. And then verses 6 through 11, you see the outrage of Nehemiah against those caught in this abuse. And then in verses 12 through 13, you see the outcome of repentance with the sober warning of judgment. There is a haunting question posed there in in verse 9, isn't there? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Here's the central point. Reverence for God and love for others go together. Reverence for God and love for others go together. Number one. Point number one. The outcry. The outcry shows the need for love the outcry shows the need for love. Look at verses 1 through 5 here. Uh, So, Just look at our own world. You hear outcries for care and love all around us. Look at the victims of crime, victims of neglect, even rigged systems that have been exposed that perpetuate oppression. Worldwide, this happens. And contrary to the Marxists, we do not think the answer to man's problem is more of man. Focusing on Truth by experience, social binaries, and social justice is not going to fix anything. The issue is that wicked mankind will always do this where there's no reverence for God. We certainly want justice, but the hearts need to be changed. As we confessed this morning, the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only where they're rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. We read that together as a church. The outcries worldwide that long for justice is an outcry for love, love of God and love from other image bearers. Look at the situation here. Let's look at the outcry here. First, landless far, uh, families who were tired, hungry, and devoid of resources accused rich, uh, richer families of exploitation. Second, Landowners have mortgaged their land to buy food, probably before Nehemiah had even arrived, and are threatened with forfeiture of property, impossible forced slave labor on the part of, of family members, and then third, people had to pay Persian taxes. So greed and disregard for God and neighbor could destroy the community. It is a very, very sad situation. Verse five: What was there? There was a, a wide uh, spread outcry. This is a cry from the heart. This is a deep distress type of cry. No small thing here, including the wives. You see that in the text? Come to make known their outcry for help to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, is, uh, it's one thing to, to deal with things from the outside. And now he's got this extra burden placed upon him. Maybe you've known that in your own life when things have been rough at, at work and then also difficult at home. And then you feel like you're coming apart. Some of you understand what that's like. This in in itself indicates the the life and death urgency of the matter that the wives have showed up. It was the women who had ultimately uh, to provide the basic needs of their perhaps large families while their husbands were away helping to repair the wall. Um, And so they were no longer going to be shielded from the uh, situations at home. The wives have shown up, so you know things have gotten very, very difficult. And then verse 5, you see daughters were being given away, given away to economic loss because of the losses in the fields and vineyards. It's likely that the dollars in verse 5 mean they were going to be used to gratify the creditors' lust as payments for delaying foreclosure on their loans. So being sold into slavery often meant that they would be put into a marriage situation that was less than desirable. I mean, (laughs) this situation is bad. Uh, Church, shouldn't we just stop right here for a moment and thank God that we don't live under these kinds of circumstances? What do we have to complain about today? But we're so good at grumbling. Things are ugly indeed in Jerusalem. Poverty, famine, debt, enslavement. It's what seems to be a shade of prostitution. That's how bad things can get. Verse 5 really summarizes how they felt. We are what? Powerless. We're Powerless. There's no power in our hand is what it literally means. The people were powerless to buy back their sons and daughters because their finances were not available. Despair is in the air, and it's a potent weapon used by the evil one. It always is. You see, the evil one has snuck in here to divide Jew from Jew by bringing instability into the camp of Israel. This was a far greater threat than anything their outside enemies could produce. Make sure you ask yourself, you know, do do you think beyond yourself when you think about how you deal with your money and how about how you go to uh, go about accumulating money? Because there were some here clearly did not give any thought to that. Do you ever ask whether what you do with your money harms other Christians or keeps them from being able to devote themselves to the work? The thought that a brother has behaved shady against you in your own covenant community is a recipe for cynicism, cynicism against the church, cynicism against the leaders, cynicism towards God. And if you can't find kindness and understanding in your own covenant community, you might as well cast it off as one more failed experiment. So Satan surely must have been smiling at this point. Maybe you're here this morning, you experienced that, you know, that kind of cynicism in a church. The outcry shows the need for love for one another. That outcry here. They're calling out for love and care. I mean, people do let us down, governments let us down. We need care. Well, who do we look to and who will teach us to love? The Bible says that we're all in debt. The wages of sin, there's a cost to it. We're all enslaved to sin, Jesus said. We're slaves to sin. There is one, my friends, I want to tell you, who will never add to your debts, but he'll take them all away. His name is Jesus. Your outcry for love has an answer fundamentally. And that answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, came and took on human flesh to live the righteous life we all should have lived and to take on our sin debt as if it was his own. That's what redeemed means, to take on someone's debt as if it was your own. Jesus died for us so that we might live, be redeemed, and be forgiven. And we know that's true because he was raised from the dead. And that answer in Christ compels us to love, to love one another, so that among us there is no never such an outcry among God's people. Because we have Christ. So we learn there a lot about the outcry. And fundamentally, while we face challenges here on earth, our biggest challenge, our most, our deepest need is to know the love of God in Christ. And knowing that will help us love others. Let's go to point two. Reverence for God and love for others go together. Number two, the outrage outrage against greed is warranted. The outrage against greed is warranted. Verse six, we see Nehemiah does not hold back his feelings, does he? I became extremely angry, the text tells us. Now, sometimes it becomes necessary to express righteous indignation against injustice. Ephesians 4:26, be angry and do not sin. And note how in verse 7 of the text, before accusing the nobles and officials, he, look at the text, what does it say? He seriously considered the matter. You see that in the text? Yeah. You see, anger is a dangerous emotion. And we live in an age where it's almost uh, the normal spirit of the age just to live in rage at the slightest offense. That is not how God would have us to live. In fact, it should be checked in the home. It should be spouses checking each other, saying, whoa, you're sinning in your anger. When our children are sinning in your anger, it needs to be confronted head on. It's not right. Because anger is a dangerous emotion, difficult to control, almost impossible to align with a rational response. So parents, do you need to go to a child perhaps this week, uh, today, and ask for forgiveness for sinful anger? I know I've done that before. Spouses, do you apologize for sinful anger or do you blame it on your personality like a non-believer would do it? Just call it what it is. I sinned. Non-believers say, oh, it's just my personality. Oh, I just got worked up. Oh, no, no, you just won't confess sin. That's what's happening. Confess it, forsake it. That's That's no real apology, by the way. No one really appreciates that or respects that. To avoid responding in kind, saying and doing things that he might later regret, Nehemiah, takes a moment or two to consider his response. There's just wisdom here for us in watching Nehemiah's leadership. It reminds us that this is what life in the Spirit looks like. We're walking in step with the Holy Spirit. The accusation, though, now is named. They were charging interest. And this should jump off the page to us if we've read the Bible before. Interest taking on loans was forbidden in Deuteronomy 23. That's just one passage where it's mentioned. The Old Testament law condemns the greed. Uh, Again and again, it speaks to profit from the misfortune of others. I'm glad that this doesn't exist in our world anymore. I'm being sarcastic. Got a couple of, there we go, got a couple of responses. Of course it still exists today. They are guilty of unjustly charging someone for a loan by exploiting them when they're in dire straits. You say, Pastor Garrett, it feels so greasy. It is. It's very greasy. It's a dirty thing to do. If only we embraced uh, God's law and the wisdom of his law and personal spending in America, both at the consumer level and at the federal level, amen? Amen. But again, there is no fear of God. Nehemiah's words in verse 7 can as well be taken to mean you are imposing too heavy a burden. And Nehemiah called a large assembly, I love that, called a large assembly to witness this confrontation Why? Because discipline was happening. For some, sadly, it takes more than a a voice of principle to get their attention. It requires a public level of accountability. It just does for some. They're so deaf until an assembly is gathered Then they can finally listen. I hope that you and I aren't those kinds of people. I want to be like Matthew 18, step one, done. Right? One witness, you confronted me, I'm ready to change. (laughs) Verse 8, they were selling their own countrymen into slavery. I mean, look at the guilt. And the text says there in verse 8, they remain silent. You see that? You couldn't help but see a preview of the judgment day of God when those who are not saved from sin, who've rejected God, stand guilty in their sin and their mouths are closed. There will be no backtalk before god on the last day mouths will be hushed romans 3 verse 19 now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to god's judgment everybody in the whole world is guilty before god no mouth anywhere in the world from the primitive tribe to the university lecture hall, will be able to raise a legitimate objection against God's judgment. Every mouth will be stopped. The mouths that do raise objections against God now will one day be silenced. You understand that? Every mouth will be stopped. So therefore, do not fear the voice of man. All his railings will cease. We should fear the Lord. Back to the text. Ironically, they had been freed from bondage to another nation in in exile, but now they were putting each other in bondage. You get the picture of what's happening? Debt is bondage, right? It can be a real bondage upon us. And again, according to the law, after a certain period, both loans and slaves were to, to be remitted, and generosity was to be enjoyed according to the law of Moses. And on matters like this, the Israelite law appealed to the heart. Rights were not to be insisted on to the extent of exploitation or the causing of intolerable poverty. In short, all the actions in the area of economic relations under the law of Moses were to be governed by love. Verse 19 really summarizes it, doesn't it? Look at verse 9, excuse me, verse 9, excuse me, verse 9, where Nehemiah says, What you are doing isn't right. He says, that ain't right. That ain't right by the law. You're not right with God. Failure to treat others, especially fellow believers, with compassion is an insult to our God and a stain upon our testimony. And the key question again is, should you, you should, should, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? What does it mean to fear God, Pastor Garrett? This is how you ask yourself a question and you answer it. It means rather, it means an an inner attitude of awe, respect, and sober, trembling joy before the greatness of God. Another way to put it is that Psalm 68, I have set the Lord always before me. It's not setting up a phone before us at, at the start of our days or setting up whatever it is that day we're facing. It's set the Lord before you. He's saying, my secret is that I live my life keeping the greatness of God always before me. And you can't do that unless you open his word. But to think of his glory, of his love and his power and let uh, let who uh, let and and let the one who's in control uh, guide us, our sovereign God. We are to fear the Lord, our God and worship him. He is our praise and he is our God. Who has done for us the great and awe-inspiring works that our eyes have seen. The Lord is great and highly praised. He is feared above all gods. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he, he spoke it and it came into being. Know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him, the word says. God himself says in Jeremiah, do you not fear me? This is the Lord's declaration. Do you not tremble before me, the one who set the sand as the boundary of the sea, as an enduring barrier that it cannot cross? The waves surge, but they cannot prevail. They roar, but cannot pass over it. You are to regard only the Lord of Armies as holy. Only he should be feared, only he should be held in awe. That's just references from the Old Testament. First Peter three fourteen through fifteen gets very practical. Who then will warrant? Excuse me. Who will then harm you, if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter regards Christ as God and Lord. Same things the Old Testament attributes to God. He attributes to Christ. To treat Christ as Lord, as holy. A biblical mark or characteristic of the true people of God is that they tremble at God's word. So when you open your Bible, it's not just for nuggets for the day. It's God's holy word. He's disclosing himself. And if you yield to him in prayer, he'll start to disclose things to you about you. And he'll show you your need of Jesus. And he'll show you the provision of Jesus. The lack of this mark of the fear of God explains why so many people reject either doctrinally or practically the authority of God's word. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what about you today? Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? And that's good if you do. The true faith is more than intellectual assent to that. True faith a living faith, the possession of faith, moves us to fear and obey God when we hear God's word. Do you look at, but let's look here. Another way that we show that we fear the Lord's responding to his word is also in how we love others. So we have to think about how we live in a very consumeristic age, right? I mean, we live in such a crazy uh, culture that we have drive-through church what in the world is that what nonsense is that so no wonder we have discipled our entire culture to be consumeristic and selfish as if we needed more encouragement to be more selfish do you use people and are all, all all over them when they serve you but have little use for them when they don't do you pr- sometimes act like a spoiled teen who's only charming when you need something but Other than that, you show no real interest in others. You know what that's called? Despising others. You know, this kind of heart can take you down a path of exploiting others, which is hateful. I've seen children grow up and treat their parents like this. They will see their parent give and give to the point of great pain and then move on like it's nothing. Young people, if you grow up and treat your parents like that, who have provided and cared for you, God, have mercy. You will give an account for that. God, help us not to raise little demon children like that, parents. Never confronting selfishness and greed. You're not loving them and not doing that. Confront it, call it out, and warn them of God's judgment. And then also, we need to warn ourselves. Here in this exploitation of these people, they, they carry with them no sense of personal moral brokenness when they, that's going on. There's no personal brokenness if that's the way you're living. They have no fear of God, no sense of His uh, or need of, the, of His rescuing grace. They have disobeyed and they possess little shame and fear. God is not in their thoughts and His holiness not only has no shaping influence in their lives, but it doesn't receive the slightest recognition when this is going on unchecked and unrepented of, something I read this week reminded me here that this is this is where we would all be if it weren't for God's eye-opening, heart-exposing, conscience-inflating, forgiving, and empowering grace uh, to see His holiness by faith. Thank God for the grace to see this at all. By grace and the Holy Spirit, we've seen His holiness. It has exposed us who we are and what we need. Aren't you thankful for that? So parents, let's not just talk to our children about God's grace. Let's seek to help them see his holiness. And if they don't understand the bad news of their doom, then the good news of God's grace won't mean anything to them. Husbands and wives, if we want to evaluate the true health of our marriage, hold your marriage before the holiness of God. How's it going? That's humbling. If you want to evaluate the moral condition of your sexuality, your finances, your parenting, your thought life, your desires, your motivations, hold them before the searching light of the holiness of God. You will never stand in front of the glory, the expansive glory of the holiness of God, and walk away with an assessment of, oh, I'm doing okay. If you walk away like that, you're self-deceived. When we stand before His holiness, there's always more light <laughs> More light on those dark corners. It's really true that you and I will know ourselves most fully and accurately when we place ourselves under the light of the glory of the one who's completely holy in every way all of the time. I'm talking to you about fearing the Lord. Let's get back to the text. Furthermore, look at verse 9. Nehemiah's point was that they were being watched by the surrounding nations. You see that? and needed to conduct themselves in a way that glorified God. Hello, we have a witness, as Nehemiah is saying. Where does Pastor Garrett get all this ambassador language and witnessing and representing all that? All over the Bible. It starts in Genesis with image bearing. It's seen in the people of God in the Old Testament, and it's explicitly taught by the apostles in the New Testament. I mean, it sounds exactly like 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Hmm. As a church, this is central to our identity. It's why we practice accountable membership. Representing God falsely is to misuse his name. You understand that we have taken on His name. We assemble in His name, and then to live contrary and rebellion to His word is to misuse His name. There are some places I wish they take the name Jesus off of it. They are misusing His name, and that's terrifying. How you deal with others after becoming a Christian and becoming a part of a church is not just about—it's not just about you us as individuals more Individuals anymore. How we live before others is a corporate and family affair. We are ambassadors under King Jesus. We are an outpost of heaven bearing witness to the gospel and to the saving grace and to the judgment to come. At many churches, too many today, this means nothing. But our members at La Plata Baptist Church care because the word repeatedly tells us to care about our witness. Again, that's why we read that article in the back of the bulletin this morning. Verses 10 and 11, Nehemiah calls them to stop what they're doing and return all that they should return. He calls the people to have mercy and grace toward their brothers, a great personal sacrifice. Again, this idea is carried over all the more in the New Testament. First Corinthians 12 teaches when our brother or sister suffers, we all suffer. We should help needy believers, not exploit them. The Jerusalem church was praised for working together to eliminate poverty among themselves in Acts chapter 4. And remember Proverbs 28 verse 27, those who give to the poor will lack nothing. So make it a practice to help those in need around you in the church. Yes, we should help those outside the church, but we, what, what a bad witness if we don't even start with, with our own family and take care of them. One day, you got to remember, we'll see the Lord Jesus. And Jesus has called us all as a church to be a people of love in our dealings and in our care for one another. And it's not just financial care. Sometimes we need to spend ourselves emotionally or physically in some way helping one another. And I've seen it happen in this church beautifully. I've seen saints help one another, and I praise God for it. One day, God's wrath will be revealed against all injustice. It will be a perfect and and holy outrage. Which brings me to the third point. Reverence for God and love for others go together. Number three, the outcome should be repentance. The outcome should be repentance, verses 12 and 13. So verse 12 comes with a a, a relieving statement. (laughs) They responded. Praise the Lord, right? They responded. And notes. They took an oath in their repentance. And repentance means to take God's side against your sin, to turn from your sin. Verse, look at verse 12. We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. Praise the Lord. I mean, look at the formal and public repentance that happened. That's impressive. Imagine how cleansing And how healing it was for the whole assembly to hear that. You think that discouraged people when these guys got up and and confessed and and forsook that sin? No. It blessed people's hearts to see that. Verse 13. We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. How sobering to see such godly accountability happen. And today, I think in the church culture, there's an allergy to this kind of public commitment. I remember months ago, a brother in this church stood up and confessed he was not being faithful to the gathering as he should be. And it was powerful to see that. We could use more of that from time to time in the life of the church. Another reason I don't want to put the live stream back on is so we can have real gospel life together as a church assembly. Where a brother or sister gets up and says, this has not been going right. It's been going wrong. I'm turning from it by God's grace. And I'm asking you to come alongside and encourage me and help me. You don't think that would be powerful in this room? Yeah, we need that. It's encouraging to see that. Our entire relationship to God is based upon covenant promises. God sanctifies the matter of of vows and oaths and promises. I mean, trust in human relationships such as marriage and, and business agreements is necessary to the, to the welfare of society. Of course we've covenanted it together as a local church. An oath is part of worship where people seeking to assure their, the, the, the veracity of what they speak call upon God to witness it and they assert and promise. And the implication is that those taking the oath are, are to be found lying. God will deal with them. Verse thirteen gives us an important reason for repenting. Look at verse thirteen; it gives us an important and important reason for repenting. Nehemiah shakes out his robe to illustrate the power of God to shake all of creation, namely sinners in judgment, like crumbs on a robe. You see the illustration. As one one author said, Nehemiah demands. His, Nehemiah's demands was followed by a solemn oath, the seriousness of which was reinforced by the ritual act of shaking the folds of his robe while reciting a curse on those who failed to keep it. The folds of the robe were used as pockets, remember? And so Nehemiah was comparing his pockets to the rooms of a house and bidding God to evict the disobedient from their houses. Reminds us of what we heard earlier this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. Or if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with, same theme, reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. God promises a shaking or judging of the nations to bring God's glory and kingdom. And those who are connected to God's kingdom and united to God through Christ cannot be shaken. Praise the Lord. There is one who will shake the heavens and the earth like an old garment to be tossed. Jesus will return in power and glory. And friends, the same judge is the same one who welcomes any sinner today who would repent and believe. You don't have to meet God in judgment. You can be welcomed in. You can be brought into his home, his household, his family. And he can only do that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the reason I know God loves you is that he made you in his image. You are an image bearer. So God loves you. And he's willing to forgive anyone here today. If you can hear me, God loves you. He's willing to forgive you today. You would repent of your sin, your way of going against him, rejecting him, knowing better than him, all those things. And saying, I know that Jesus is your son. I know that he's my only hope that he lived the life I should have lived and died the death I deserve, and that he was raised on the third day. Forgive me, have mercy on me, God. Today, if you will turn to Christ, he will forgive you. He'll give you eternal life. Come to Christ. You don't have to meet God in judgment because he himself took on the judgments, the, The curses of the covenant fell on him so that it would not have to fall on us on any who repent and believe that's the good news today let me conclude today god's word is calling us to live before the face of god and when we do we will live in the fear of god and in love towards others let's pray Lord, we have not revered you as we ought, and we have not loved others as we should, Lord. Lord Jesus, you fulfilled all that righteousness for us. Where we fell short, you never did. You always lived in, in perfect obedience as the one true, eternally begotten Son. And you died the death we deserve. And we thank you that through your resurrection, we can have new life. And by your Spirit, we can be empowered to live according to the spirit in the in the fear of god and in the love of others so we lord we pray you would impress these truths upon our hearts with joy and lord cause us to be your special witnesses lord here on earth lord proclaiming the love of jesus and adorning the gospel lord with our love for one another in jesus name we pray amen